So I had had it all planned out. I had set my clothes and my belongings out the night before. I had gotten up plenty early, which is a bit of a miracle. I had eaten breakfast. I had even spent time in meditation. All of those things had happened. And I had checked the night before, I had even checked the bus schedule. And I walked out of my apartment with plenty of time to catch the bus. But as things are going to happen, the bus, which was somehow registering through the GPS in the app I was looking at as being right there on the way, and then passing by this phantom bus that never came. So the bus was not coming and not coming. And I looked at my, at my, at my watch, and I realized at this point, even though I had left in plenty of time, that now I had less than an hour to get myself downtown to the start of the Cap City Half Marathon, which I did yesterday. <laughs> I so I went to plan B. I actually had a plan B in mind. So I called Lyft on my app and got, uh, got a car. Mercifully, there was one car left at 6.45, in the, well, about 7 in the morning at this point. There was one car left still taking people for rides. And this generous soul was out and said, this is my last ride, actually. I've been working since midnight. And, uh, and, he, and I said, okay, just take me as close as you can get me before the roads shut down, <laughs> downtown. And I only live a couple of miles away, so this actually didn't take that long. And I actually made it with a little bit of time to spare. And then I thought, wait, I still have to check my bag at the gear check bag. And I didn't even think I needed the stuff. But you know what? Of course, I had brought an extra bag for clothes and whatnot for after I was done. So I had to go through this crushing crowd that it was, of course, going toward, like going against me to go to the bag check. And then I find out it's only 20 minutes to the start of the race, but there's what appears to be thousands of people lined up to check their bag. Of course, probably doing similar things to what I did, right? Waiting too long or having some snafu in their travels, right? So they're waiting in line and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I'm not sure I'm gonna get all the way back, which was several blocks back to get where I needed to line up. And, and while we're waiting in this long line, the person on the, the microphone keeps saying, there's 20 minutes, you need to make your way to your corrals, like you need to line up. And if you're waiting in that line, make sure you go right back. We're like, really, we knew, like, <laughs> right? So you're getting this pressure and you're getting a countdown. We had 25 minutes, then 20 minutes, then 18 minutes. You know, we're getting these countdowns. We're like, we know, we know, <laughs> we need to get back. So finally I get to the head of the line and I quickly drop off my, my gear and my bag. And I hustle back several blocks to the corral to like another crushing mass of people, right? Um, who are all getting themselves ready to start this race. And I found out later there were like 14,000 people who were running this particular, different distances, but various races that day. So you would have totally thought, right, given the, the, uh, un, you know, the, the rushed and hurried nature of the morning that I would be totally messed up in my race and stressed out, right? Um, but actually, no, I had weathered this storm with relative calm. Now, maybe it was the fact that I had actually managed to sleep the, well, pretty well the night before, which doesn't always happen before a race day. But maybe it was the meditation practice that I told you I had actually had time to do that morning. Maybe it was just the fact that I've now done enough races that I know that they're not going to start without a bunch of people like who are still back in the bag check line. Um, I know they're, they're going to let you start at some point, even if you're not in the right space. So I know that about these things at this point. So who knows? But... I did start the race soon after and had a, had a pretty good day, actually. Um, but I could easily be telling you a really different story, right? 
I could easily be saying about how that unexpected bus problem totally wrecked my attitude and my race. I could have told you about how nervous and tired I was during the race because of the early morning pressure of time. Even if the schedule had gone well, I could have been so nervous and frightened, maybe if it had been my first race. As I, and I've had plenty of those days, <laughs> that those days don't go as well because you're so tired and nervous already um, before the race starts. So this morning and next Sunday too, I'm actually riffing, I tell this story because I'm riffing off of Pastor Glenn's um, sermon series on calming the storm. So the point I think that, that he's been making in his sermon series is that we get to hope in these times of what feels like, well, a storm, right? A fear, or anxiety, or confusion, or, you know, the bus not coming on time, or whatever the thing is that, that messes us up. And I think that feeling into that fear and noticing how it works in us, or maybe how it doesn't work sometimes and it doesn't affect us, is something to explore if we're going to get to that hope that Jesus offers us. So, so let's dive in a little bit into our text today. Um, this kind of fear, there is a fear in our scripture, and it's much more complex than race day butterflies <laughs> that I was describing. So here's what happens. Jesus walks into this temple and begins to teach. Now, bear in mind that this, this particular story is happening right after Jesus' triumphal entry in, into Jerusalem. So the day of, that we would call Palm Sunday now, where people are raving blanch, branches at him and singing Hosanna, right? They're so excited. Huge crowds come to welcome him. And he has also just overturned the tables in a fit of righteous anger in the temple. So this just so there's a lot going on as the scribes, um, as the scribes and the teachers, the priests and the scribes come up to him to talk to him. Now it's hard to know their intent when they come over to them, but given what I was just describing, I think it's safe to say that they're aware that Jesus is causing some anxiety and fear, probably even in them, right? They're probably a little afraid and not sure what's going on with him. He's, he's, after all, challenging the practices that they condone within the temple. And he has the support, at least for now, of a lot of people behind him. And that's nerve-wracking stuff. So what's interesting is that they start to talk to him, now not about the content of his teachings. Now these were priests and scribes. These were the keepers of the sacred scripture, and they knew exactly what they were talking about. They, they were scholars. It was their job to know about the text and about the teachings, but they don't ask him about that. They ask him, rather, by what authority he teaches these things. So whatever their intent, it's probably not genuinely curious <laughs> what they're coming up to say to him. But Jesus, who is very wily, so when we think about, you know, acting like Jesus would act, remember that he's really wily, like this is a thing, and turns the question back on them. And, and he, so he says, I will also ask you one question. If you tell me the answer, then I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. Did the baptism of John come from heaven or was it of human origin? And he engaged in a quid pro quo of sorts with them. So assess the authority of John and tell me about its source. Now, after all, these are the chief priests and the scribes, the scholars, the keepers of the sacred texts, like I said. Now, if they don't know about that, then who does, right? 
But what's interesting is that they don't actually reflect on the sacred scripture or centuries of teaching about this, which they have in their minds, or at least at their fingertips they should know, but they reflect instead on the implications of their answer. So they're not worried about the right answer, they're worried about what people will think. <laughs> because if they say that John's authority came from God, which a lot of people believe, then Jesus can remind them that they need to be more faithful. If they say that it's a human source, then they risk angering these crowds who are now with Jesus and were with John before him. So there's, there's risk involved here. They're actually making shrewd political calculations and not discerning God's will through prayer or even by consulting scripture and law for guidance, which was actually their job. <laughs> they are really afraid of what people will think about them. And I don't know about you, but I think that after those first primal fears that we have, like of getting killed by a wild animal or starving to death or something like that, right? Those primal fears. I think the original human fear just might be the fear of what other people think. And it's totally understandable in this situation. These chief priests and scribes are caught between a rock and a hard place, and Jesus just made it harder. Their authority is tenuous. If you think about the context, the Roman authorities who occupy Jerusalem give them authority over religious matters, and they can take it away just as easily. Romans pay little attention to them unless they make enough noise that draws negative attention. And Jesus, who's getting people to rise up in his support, is making just that kind of noise. And that's scary. They don't want the crowds to question their authority either, choosing to follow Jesus' take on ancient Hebrew law rather than their own. So Jesus, who's the outlier, the uneducated preacher that is compelling these crowds, has relatively little to lose in this situation. He rests his ultimate authority on God, and at least for now, the support of the crowds. Now, let's pause for a second and not get too judgy about these priests and scribes, and let's, but with, but without at least looking in the log, at the log in our own eye, right? So how many times have you been in meetings or conversations with people who are discussing of the merits of a decision, right? Um, or who are discussing, excuse me, they're not discussing the merits of a decision or necessarily the God's will for a particular faithful group if we're talking about a church group but they are calculating what people will think about the decision. Now, I have spent hours and hours um, with church leaders in lots of settings. Before I came here to FCC a couple of months ago, I've worked in the United Church of Christ in, in actually four different conference settings and the national setting of the church. So I've spent more time in church meetings with different church leaders than I could shake a stick at. So <laughs> there, and I've spent time while they're weighing decisions about some bold new initiative, or sometimes it's even a small, relatively small decision, but one that they know might rile some people up. So they spend, what ends up happening is that they spend almost all of their time, like the chiefs, the priests, and the scribes, fearfully mapping out the pushback they think they're going to get from a controversial decision. Now, even if that pushback comes from a just a vocal few, just a few, who may not like it, now, I've heard people go round and round about decisions ranging from who they might nominate to a governing board to what kind of carpet they're going to pick for the narthex or whether or not they're going to keep a particular potluck dinner 
even though no one's showing up for it anymore. And they give little attention to the merits of the decision itself, but instead become consumed with what people would think about it. They are always afraid that fear creeps up and of the aggravating voices that might rise up in light of the decision. Underlying this, the stories that I was just telling is the same tension that exists in Jesus' story. So apparently this is an ancient practice of worrying about what other people think. The concern about what people would say about what the crowds might do if they give, if, if the chiefs, the priests and the scribes um, give an unpopular answer or decision. Perhaps everyone is questioning their own authority and notice that it's tenuous. Given to, authority is given to us by flights of popular opinion, and those can easily be unseated by the next prevailing wind. In any of these cases, people are nervous, fearful of what might happen to the institutions they protect. They're afraid of what people might think and what trouble they might make for, what trouble they might make for it, the, against any particular decision. Now, Brene Brown, who some of you may have read, is a researcher who writes and speaks about shame and vulnerability. And she often says, that, says and writes that acts of bravery always require risk and vulnerability. Now, countless other books on leadership reminds us that some vocal opposition to change is to be expected, a normal, natural part of the process with any group of people. And this decision wrangling that I'm talking about certainly isn't limited to a committee or a boardroom. We do the same thing um, with family and friends, right? Think about the holidays, right? So we may not have the energy to go to two Thanksgiving dinners or room in our stomach for all that food, but we go anyway to two different dinners because we don't want great Aunt Mary to be disappointed in us, right? It's not, because, it's not because we don't love her, it's just that we don't want to eat that much food, right? Or have the energy to go to two different houses. But we contemplate what that person's going to think. So in order to do the bold thing, the brave thing, we must move through our fear of what people might think in order to do it. And how do we do that? Now, we develop lots of ways of dealing with fear, and some are healthier than others, truth be told. We can numb fear through too much food, drink, or legal or illegal, illegal substances sometimes. We deny fear and simply do the risky or just plain dumb behavior, right, regardless of the risk to ourselves or others. We sometimes externalize our fear so that we can experience it somewhere else out there rather than dealing with it in front of us by watching maybe sci-fi and horror TV shows and movies. That's one of my personal favorite tactics, by the way. There are healthier choices, though, is, and it's what I think is we often do through ritual or spiritual practice. We ritualize life transitions like marriage, funerals, rites of passage like baptism or moving into adulthood to celebrate these scary and difficult changes, right? And connect them to God and tradition and community rather than simply resting in fear or numbness all alone. Now, just as I promised a few minutes ago, it is our, your, your turn to chat for a few minutes. And I'm gonna invite you to find a partner somewhere here in, in the room, um, two or three people just sitting next to you, 
and talk for just a few minutes about how are, what are some of the ways you move through fear when you think about it? What are some ways that you move through fear? Maybe what calms you down enough for you to be able to use your voice or to set that boundary that's uncomfortable to set or to make a hard decision? So talk with a couple of people sitting around you um, and I'll just give you a few minutes to talk about that and then invite maybe one or two of you to share what you shared in your, in your small group. So go ahead, find a, find a friend. <laughs> so let your partner wrap up their uh, story if you're still finishing that up. I'm impressed with how well you're conversing. <laughs> this is awesome. <laughs> I love it. It is a good question, right? So are there one or two people who want to share um, what, what maybe you and your neighbor talked about, some ways that you move through fear? Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> right? And uh, what else did he say? Gardening and gardening. Boxing. And boxing. And that type of thing. So, and, and her mother watches murder mysteries. <laughs> and they're like you. I think it was just like Right. Right. At least better to do it in our mind, right? Yeah. So, all those things exercising, gardening, um, meditating, watching TV sometimes, right? Those ways of moving through fear in our life. Anything else? Other other ways? Yeah. Um, you guys talked about breathing and mm -hmm. taking a breath before you go through that scary moment. I love how you referenced Brene Brown. Mm -hmm. One of my favorites. And mm -hmm. I think to take that breath before you become vulnerable and let it mm. affect the situation that is going to be kind of a painful thing for you. Yeah, yeah. Taking deep breaths, exercising, things for sure. Right. Well, it, it almost is like I, I asked you to say that, which I actually didn't. <laughs> but one of the things I was going to do, uh, I was actually going to close us out in a little bit of an unconventional, not let, uh, unconventional for a sermon kind of way. Um, when I was describing to Carol that one of my practices, I've been a yoga practitioner and, and a teacher. Well, I've been a practitioner for almost 15 years and a teacher for about nine. And, and one of the ways that I now, it's taken me years to develop this, but now when I feel that sort of, that, that, you know that feeling in your chest when you're nervous, when you get that sort of tightening feeling and your breath gets more shallow, I, I almost reflexively slow my breathing down. Um, and that wasn't always the case, I promise you. It's years and years of practicing it. And even sometimes I still forget and don't do it. But breathing is probably one of the easiest and, and what cheapest, right? And, and simplest. You don't need a thing with you. You don't need to do a lot of special stuff. It's just paying attention to your breath. And so I'm going to invite you into just a couple of minutes of, of a breath practice with me if you're game. So I'd invite you to, to make a comfortable seat if you're not comfortable already and put both feet on the floor if that's comfortable to you. 
Go ahead and, if it's comfortable, close your eyes. Notice the weight of your feet inside your shoes resting on the floor. Perhaps the weight of your hands in your lap or the pressure of your pressure of the backs of your legs into your seat. Go further, a little further inside and notice the gentle rhythm of your breath. No need to control it, simply observe it. Notice its shape, its texture, maybe its length inside the body. can stay with this breath watching practice or if you're game notice the length of your inhales and exhales you might even count the number of of beats that it takes to inhale versus exhale they might be a little different if it's comfortable even out the length of the inhale and exhale. Take three rounds of these even breaths or observe three more rounds of breath. As you complete that third round of breath, begin to bring awareness back into your body. Maybe gentle movements of your fingers and toes, gently opening your eyes if they were closed. And bring your awareness back into the room. So I hope that that's a tool that you can begin practicing if you haven't practiced that before. And remember that, that God, that spirit of hope and life, is as close as our breath every single second of the day and that can help us move, move through fear or any other uncomfortable part of our lives or our days. Amen.